India reaches out to the Taliban regime with a visit by a senior diplomat. Is India actually considering reopening its embassy in Kabul next? That's a question we're going to ask. Hello and welcome to Worldview at the Hindu with me, Sohasini Heather. This is episode 64 on June the 3rd, 2022. Now, in a sudden move, the Modi government announced it had sent a senior Ministry of External Affairs official and diplomat to Kabul on Thursday to meet with senior Taliban officials, including the regime's acting foreign minister, Amir Khan Motaki. Thus far, Delhi, which doesn't have a, an embassy in Kabul and like other countries, doesn't actually recognize the Taliban regime, had not sent any formal delegation to Kabul, which other countries have been doing in the last few months. Naimiye said that the visit was really just about humanitarian assistance. In a statement announcing that visit, it said that the team led by Joint Secretary for Pakistan, Afghanistan and Iran, J.P. Singh, and consisting a number of diplomatic and security officials met with Mr. Motaki and also toured India-funded facilities like the Chimtala Power Plant, for example, a hospital, the Indira Gandhi Children's Hospital, as well as a school there. So what has India's humanitarian assistance really been? India has mainly sent its assistance to Afghanistan through international agencies that are still working there since the Taliban took power, of course, on August 15, 2021. Now, this includes about 20,000 metric tons of wheat that have been so far sent out of a commitment of 50,000 metric tons that's being taken by trucks over the road route with the permission of the Pakistan government and then handed over to the World Food Programme, WFP, there in Afghanistan. And the Indian government signed an MOU for this. Then there are about 13 tons of medicines and 500,000 doses of COVID vaccines, anti-COVID vaccines to the Indira Gandhi Children's Hospital, as well as another million doses or so to Covaxin, the international agency, for Afghan refugees who are based in Iran at present. Another 60 million uh, doses of polio vaccines have been handed over to UNICEF as well. And finally, there is winter clothing and other essentials that India has handed over to various UN agencies there. However, it is clear that overseeing this humanitarian assistance being distributed was not really the main or only reason for a multi-ministerial meeting that actually needs to visit Kabul to look over it. To begin with, the visit is a first major step towards the Taliban and outreach, if you like, which will give the regime that took power from the Ghani government last August more legitimacy. And we'll speak a little bit more about that later. With the ice broken, it's also clear that more such visits are being planned. Clearly, if you're overseeing humanitarian aid distribution, it cannot be just in Kabul. There will be more such visits. J.P. Singh, who had earlier attended the start of Taliban-Afghan talks, in Doha the year before and then met with Taliban Deputy Prime Minister Abdul Salam Hanafi in Moscow last year as a quasi-special envoy is also looking like the person who is the point person really dealing with all of this. The big question now is whether India will restart its Indian embassy in Kabul, which remember was shut down after the Taliban took over. And of course, at Worldview, we went through every Part of the dramatic developments there when all 200 Indian diplomats had to be evacuated. Subsequently, the uh, embassy was reopened and staffed by local staffers. Remember, no country actually recognizes the Taliban government in Afghanistan. And even so, there are 13 missions open in Kabul. So which are those missions that are open? Many of them just remained open. Some of them reopened over time. 
So, of course, the ones that really did stay open through the Taliban takeover were Russia, China, Iran, Pakistan, uh, Turkey. Then we saw a quick reopening from Central Asia, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan. Tajikistan hasn't yet opened. And then Indonesia has most recently opened, as well as the Gulf countries, Qatar, which of course facilitates the talks there with the Taliban mission in Doha as well. And then the UAE, Saudi Arabia, they've all reopened their missions. The European Union actually announced a delegation was based in Kabul. It didn't call it a full embassy or mission opening. And the United States has deputed Qatar to officiate for it. So speaking to the Hindu, in fact, to my colleague, Kalol Bhattacharji, the Taliban spokesperson, Sohail Shaheen, actually said that the issue of India reopening its embassy had actually been discussed during the official talk. And the Taliban is willing to give security guarantees for the Indian mission because, of course, this is the major concern for the government. Afghanistan also still maintains an embassy in Delhi, which regularly interacts with the government as well. So that's another key interlocutor, if you like. And then there are also a number of development projects that have been awarded to private Indian companies or public ones and are being built with Indian assistance in many cases, including electricity projects, road construction, dam and school projects as well. And it seems that the government would like to explore restarting these so long as it has guaranteed some protection for them from the Taliban. Now, when asked about whether the visit and official talks means a softening of stand by India towards the Taliban, this is, however, what the Ministry of External Affairs spokesperson said, indicating that the government is still shy of acknowledging that it is opening up ties with the Taliban in any major way in all those various respects that I just spoke about. Listen in. I think you're reading far too much into this visit. This visit is about our humanitarian assistance to the people of Afghanistan. And as we outlined in our press release, we have been providing humanitarian assistance in various forms. The ongoing visit is to oversee the delivery of this assistance, and they will have discussions with the relevant people for that. And as I said, India has historical and civilizational ties with the Afghan people, and these long-standing ties will guide or will continue to guide our approach to Afghanistan. But in diplomacy, what is not said is often as important as what is said and what precedes it. Now, the visit to Kabul by the Indian delegation was also preceded by a number of very significant indicators. The first has been over the last few months, the government's Central Asian outreach. It began with the National Security Advisors Conference in Afghanistan, held in Delhi in November, Foreign Ministers Conference then in December with Central Asian foreign ministers, and then Prime Minister Narendra Modi's virtual summit with Central Asian leaders in January. All of these pitched for a stronger engagement with Afghanistan, particularly given the identified triple threats of terrorism, drugs, and refugees that are, could emanate from there and threaten the entire region. The Taliban's decision then to allow the former CEO and a very, very prominent leader, Dr. Abdullah Abdullah, to visit Delhi. Remember, they were kept in virtual house arrest along with people like former President Hamid Karzai, he, but Dr. Abdullah Abdullah was actually allowed to visit Delhi, meet his family. This was seen as a positive signal a month and a half ago. And the expectation is that he also carried some messages to Delhi from the Taliban. Uh, more recently, U.S. Special Envoy on Afghanistan, Thomas West, made a visit to Delhi. He met with J.P. Singh, in fact, and other officials to discuss the situation. He also met with Dr. Abdullah. And then National Security Advisor Ajit Doval traveled to Dushanbe in Tajikistan 
where he spoke about the situation in Afghanistan and he said a number of things that girls must go back to school, that India will always stand by the Afghan people, will be guided by their interests. But he said very significantly that it is the duty of regional countries to enhance the capability of Afghanistan to counter terrorism and terrorist groups which pose a threat to regional peace and security. Now something in there seemed like he was saying that India now has a willingness to distinguish between those in control of Afghanistan when he says Afghanistan must be protected and those who are part of the terror groups over there. And finally, in all these positive signals, we've also seen some progress in the back-channel talks between India and Pakistan. And apart from the transit trade that was negotiated for Afghanistan, other movement as well, especially since the new government of Shabazz Sharif came into power. Remember, Prime Minister Modi greeted the new Pakistani Prime Minister in a rare exchange. There's hardly any official communication in that sense. And just uh, we see other things. The ceasefire line is still maintained in the past two months. Two Pakistani delegations, one for a regional terror meeting on the SCO and one on Indus water talks also visited Delhi. So now the big question is, will better ties with the Taliban be welcomed by the military establishment in Pakistan or not? What is the connection between Pakistan and remember India does not actually control the boundary right up to Afghanistan? So given all of this, and it is clear that for a number of reasons, regional security, regional influence, India's traditional relationship with the Afghan people, the government clearly wants to engage with whoever is in power in, in Kabul, even if that is the Taliban, and even if that is not an official engagement in terms of recognition. What, however, are the downsides of India's latest move to engage with the Taliban? Where do we see the pitfalls and what diplomats have to watch out for. The first is that regardless of how the government characterizes the visit, it is clear that sending an official delegation to Kabul to meet officials belonging to the Taliban regime is a shift from the past nine months. It's a shift, in fact, from what India did in the 1996 to 2001 period where there was no such communication. If nothing else, this legitimizes the Taliban government there and as a result, shows an inconsistency in New Delhi's policy towards it. Secondly, since August, the Taliban has not changed. In fact, some would say it has not even changed in 20 years. It has not even kept any of the promises it made before it came into power. So, for example, it has not formed a more inclusive government, including all parts of society, as it had said it would, nor has it allowed girls sixth grade and upwards back into school, despite international outcry over this. It has imposed even tighter restrictions on women, enforcing a full veil, stopping women from traveling without male family members, many places, women not being allowed to come and work as well. Neither have attacks on minorities stopped. So if none of this has changed, how does India explain that it has changed its position? And this is going to be a question that will be asked. The third is that a new UN report that just came out shows that not only are terror groups continuing to find safe havens, on Afghan soil, and remember this was another promise the Taliban made, they do so with the Taliban's support. Groups like the Lashkar-e-Toiba and the Jaish-e-Mohammed, which only target India in fact, continue to work out of places like the Nangarhar province and other areas according to this UN report, and yet there is no sign that these issues have been raised with the Taliban before or during the visiting team was there. So it, it does seem like another big question over why this engagement is being reopened right now. Fourth, as violence in Jammu and Kashmir continues to rise, security agencies will be increasingly concerned about infiltration of terrorists from Pakistan and Afghanistan 
and it will be difficult to explain this step towards diplomacy if violence actually escalates. And fifth, what does the possible restart of an Indian mission mean about Indian policymakers' decision to pull out all Indians and shut the embassy down last year in August when the Taliban came to power? Despite all the preparation for it, remember all the signs were that the Taliban was coming, there really is now a need to review the government's policy processes on Afghanistan if it plans to reverse its decisions, especially if it plans now to open the embassy in Kabul. Either way, the government really must abandon this policy of ambush and surprise, instead taking up a more considered and well-communicated foreign policy that engages the people of India on their plans. This will also cut out the unnecessary rhetoric we see in domestic politics that actually hampers India's space in foreign policy and flexibility. And what it will do is prepare public opinion better for its decision to now follow a more muscular policy towards India's Western neighbors with a much more soft engagement than they are undertaking in the present. Now, let's get you some reading recommendations. I have in the past year actually flooded you with recommendations on Afghanistan. I'm not going to repeat most of those. But here are some more of the recent books I think you might like. Many of them tell you much more about the Taliban regime that is now in power. The first, the Taliban Reader, War, Islam and Politics in Their Own Words by Alex Strick von Linschoten and Felix Cohen. The other one by Betty Dam on the origins of the Taliban and where its shadowy leader Mullah Omar went. It's called Looking for the Enemy, Mullah Omar and the Unknown Taliban. This came out last year. Then there's an author that I really enjoy reading because he's both prolific, he writes a lot, but it's also very well researched, uh, called Antonio Giustozzi. He brought out a compendium last year of all his work called Taliban at War 2001 to 2021. And he's bringing out his latest book in paperback this year. It's called The Islamic State in Khorasan, Afghanistan, Pakistan and the New Central Asian Jihad. And this comes out in June, in fact, mid-June this year. Another book I've recommended that is coming out in paperback is about the US in Afghanistan. It's called The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War by Craig Whitlock and the Washington Post, a lot of really shocking documents that they have been able to bring together. Then, of course, there's my colleagues Anand Krishnan and Stanley Johnny's book. It's doing very well. It's been very well reviewed and it really do recommend it. The Comrades and the Mullahs, China, Afghanistan and the New Asian Geopolitics. There's an evergreen. I've spoken about it before on India's ties with Afghanistan. It was written in 2017 called My Enemy's Enemy, India and Afghanistan from the Soviet Invasion to the US Withdrawal. So there is actually, it is actually quite up to date by Avinash Paliwal. And finally, there's a book to watch out for, The Collected Works of Photographer Danish Siddiqui. Remember, he was killed in a Taliban ambush last year, just at the start of the, of the last push for Kabul that we saw then. The book by the slain photographer, I mean, of photos by him, uh, is expected to be out in September. We certainly hope you enjoy reading all of these and join us here again on Worldview from the team here. Thanks for watching.